In this episode, Craig Foster, CFO at Pixar, talks about coming up under Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz during the dot-com boom, shares his philosophy on mentoring future CFOs, and outlines how he is always on the lookout for the right technology to execute finance goals. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. One last thing, we want to hear from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better for you. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll be entered to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We'd love your feedback. So Craig, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Craig, I'd love to start just by understanding a little bit more about your journey to to being CFO and, and the position that you're in now, because you started off as many finance leaders, corporate finance leaders do, working in, in advisory positions uh, where you like earned your trade. And in your case, you, you actually had like a specialization or you were certainly involved in technology implementation, which I'd love to touch on later. But the part I find fascinating is you went out at the height of the dot-com boom into a tech company or into a scale-up company. And they probably weren't called scale-ups back then, but you went into that and then rather than go like work your way up through the, the ranks in, in corporate finance, you went out into banking before coming back in again. So what was it that led you to taking that route to eventually becoming CFO? I worked as a consultant at one of these big four accounting firms. And what we would do is we would go out and uh, we're basically pitching for hours on trying to solve some sort of problem. And then we would bring along another company to help us differentiate our offering. The pitch was to HP, and it was around, we're trying to solve something for the euro currency. It was very, uh, very topical at the time. We won this big piece of business, and the company approached me and said, hey, would you be interested in doing exactly what you did for us? And I remember asking the person, I said, like, what, I, I don't know, what is, what is something like that pay? And the guy said, uh, and I told him what I made, and he goes, we don't have a salary band that low. So that's, <laughs> so I'm like, Okay, this is actually going to turn into an opportunity. So the company that I went to was, uh, it was like one of these high flyer dot-com kind of companies. It was a company called LoudCloud. And more importantly, the leaders of LoudCloud were two guys, Andreessen and Horowitz. And I think they're relatively famous now in the whole like VC world. But at the time, Ben Horowitz was the CEO and Mark Andreessen was the chairman and founder. And so, you know, it was really a great opportunity post their Netscape wins to learn from some of the best. So I had a bunch of different roles there, just doing all kinds of interesting things. It was a, a parlay into pre-sales, which was a little bit of what I was doing before in terms of like trying to win transactions for the uh, big four firm. And then I also had a role where I owned the costing model and I was a product manager. But it was just like in, when you work in a growing company, you just have all these great opportunities to try different things as long as the management team is supportive. And so without going too deep into the history of LoudCloud, the company went from, I joined when there was probably like 150 people we went to 750 people, we went public, and then we ended up getting bought. And I knew that the transaction was happening, but I was really enamored with like this whole just the finance world. And I was really, really interested. And so I said, you know what, 
I know what I want to do for the rest of my life is I want to go back and be an advisor to companies that just went through this crazy life cycle that I did, which is like pre-product company to trying to find market fit to trying to figure out what the next stage of growth is. And there's financing and there's acquisitions, just kind of like the whole ballgame. And I need more training to do that. And so what I did was I'm like, if you looked at the letters I wrote to, or you have to write these essays to go into business school, they were exactly around the fact that I'm like, I want to be an investment banker. I want to be an advisor to companies that are going to go through the same life cycle that I just, I got to experience firsthand. What was it like working with Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz? Because now they are two of the most famous storied names in, in Silicon Valley. And obviously they, they've had incredible success as operators and founders, but then more laterally as, as investors and they've kind of shook up the valley for a while. So what was it like in there? Well, I would actually say, and, and there's books written, like Ben Horowitz has written books on this stuff, but it was absolute chaos, I would, <laughs> I would say. And I think that, you know, I look at how old I am now and I'm like 10 years older than those guys were when they were running the company, you know, or more. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing how much success they had as young individuals. But they took a very hands-on approach. I would say it was probably the most important thing. I'll give you, for instance, is like Ben Horowitz used to teach how to be a leader inside the company. Like if you got promoted to manager, which is something that happened to me while I was there, you had to take a mandatory management class that was led by Ben Horowitz. And it was like, I can't remember how many sessions it was, but it was like, it'd be like a Thursday night and it'd be from like six to eight o'clock at night. There would be another 10 people in the class or 20 people in the class. He had built modules on how to teach you how to be a good manager. I think that kind of management training was like probably some of the most valuable stuff that I've ever had. And it was because he actually, I mean, he's just a CFO of a company and he's like taking his time to actually teach people how to be better at their jobs. I, I think I've built that into my DNA is just like, you have to have a hands-on approach in terms of the way you're going to lead people. The other part of that is like injuries. And he was kind of like the, uh, I don't know, like the professor of the company. So he would be out doing these, like, I think you can learn a lot about from him about just strategy and stuff like that. But it was more observational because like he wasn't like in the office every day, like, and he didn't have anybody reporting to him and he didn't report to anybody. So it was kind of like he had like free reign to do what he needed to do. So yeah, operating and like and almost on a different level in a different plane from everyone else. And one of the things that comes up in in places like that where it's a very formative experience, certainly for you, I'm sure it was intense and and really satisfying and, and clearly successful. Did you end up building like a network that you have followed through your careers in different places in the in the Bay Area since then? Or did your actually your shift into corporate finance or investment banking actually? Did that then kind of break that network? Uh, and you moved into like another another world. Yeah, I think I think they actually build it on top of each other. So like the network from the Loud Cloud, the, the company changed its name to Opsware later, but the Loud Cloud Opsware has like served me for my entire life. So I think the, one of the best things that happened at Loud Cloud was it was an amalgamation of really talented people that have gone on to do really great things. Like the former CFO was the CFO of Splunk, which is a very important company in the software space. And there's a number of CEOs that have come out of there and all these other different successful people, plus what's happened inside of Andreessen Horowitz in terms of all these people that are now, you know, I'd say like maybe 15% of the company that was at LoudCloud is currently working at Andreessen Horowitz and then they've propagated. So it's, just, it's built a network from day one. And then on the investment banking side, so you take that in terms of like, now you have a calling card into all these emerging companies and all these uh, you know, next generation firms that are being built. 
And then you start meeting all these CEOs and CFOs. In investment banking, you're working directly with top management and the boards and all their people that are running these companies. And so after a number of years, I mean, you really start to build a really nice ecosystem of people to interact with. Actually, that served me really well as I transitioned into a CFO is that I had a mentorship of people that I built relationships over the last 10 or 15 years that I could call on. And they became like, call me anytime. We would sit down and have lunch. I have like three or four mentors that I've actually worked with over the years. And they've been fantastic because I created those relationships early on in my career. Talking about that transition, so you spent all, close to a decade in investment banking. As you said, you were an advisor to these exciting next generation companies. And I'm sure at that point, there, it must have required something pretty significant for you to jump ship from there and then actually go back in-house per se and then become a CFO for the first time. So what, what prompted that move? It's one of these things where you just like, I think career is kind of built with a little component of luck and a little bit of, you know, determination. And I wasn't actually, I was very, very happy in banking. I loved it. It was like the pace is absolutely ridiculous. And you hear all these horror stories about people stay up for 48 hours at a time. And that stuff never really faced me. And like, I had things where I'd fly to Japan for 12 hours and then come back, you know, because I had uh, start kicking off an IPO or something. So I just loved the pace and the network. But at the end of the day, um, I had taken a company public a couple of years earlier. And when you take a company public and you're the lead underwriter, you get to know everybody in the company. So you know the auditors, you know the management team, you know the board, and most importantly, you know the CEO. And he approached me, and this is something I never had asked for, and he approached me and said, you know what, there's going to be a change at CFO, and we'd love for you to interview for the job. And so that put me into like this self-reflection component where I was like, okay, let me think about my career. And I think the one thing that I missed was kind of going back to these loud cloud Opsword days is I'm not really building anything in banking. And so I'm a real estate agent for companies. Let me show you this. Let's help you raise capital. Let's connect pieces together. But I wasn't really, I felt like I could do more. And I didn't really have like a stamp on the world. And so it's like, and, I, and I'll give you like a, for instance, like one of the, one of the last big deals I was working on was uh, we were taking Dell Corporation private. They've got, they've since gone public again, but this is, it was a very big transaction. Met Michael Dell and we had like a dinner as a group thing, but there was another 40 people in the room and we were all like a service agent into this major transaction that was very lucrative, but I didn't, my sense of ownership of the entire process was a little bit lacking. I just felt a, I felt a little bit of disconnect, but I wasn't disillusioned or unhappy with banking. It's just like, I really wanted to build something for the last half of my career. And I just saw this as a great opportunity to get started. I also got very fortunate because a lot of people that transition out of banking they come in and they started in like corporate development or they started in FP&A or they started something else. And I got, go, I got to go straight to a company as a CFO. I, I skipped probably a lot of steps and maybe I was qualified or not, not qualified, but it's, it just seemed to have worked out. And I think that's such a common experience that you, that you hear people comment on where they were in some type of service-based or advisory role. And it's exactly the same that happened with me when I was previously in consulting. What tired after a while is that you, you're right, the pace is is intoxicating and the inter, it's intellectually satisfying, but you're not always passionate about the problems and you're moving from problems one problem to another. So you're not building on top of it. And as you said, ultimately, you don't own it. So you might not be working on the brief or the project or the, the product or service that you're truly passionate about. 
And it is a sea change for when you move in-house. To build on that, like I felt like we didn't have to live with the decisions. As a CFO, my litmus test for like ideas or strategy components has completely changed from when I was a banker. So it's like, you know, you're a banker, you come in, you put together like a merger model and you're like, this makes a ton of sense. You should totally do this. But as a banker, you're not living with the execution risk and you're not living with the downside of the people management piece. You don't have to live with a lot of the decisions. And, you know, a lot of careers have been ruined by making bad decisions on strategic elements. And I felt like maybe even I look back even reflectively and like, and a lot of times we were being very cavalier in terms of the ideas and the things that we were, you know, I don't want to say pushing, but like the ideas that we would come up with and stuff. And just like my whole, I've had a complete change in terms of like how I value decisions that we make and the the magnitude of how important the decisions are and how they affect not just myself or the company, but you know, the thousands of people that we have working for the companies as well. Are you suggesting then that your decision-making now is perhaps a little bit more thoughtful, maybe even deeper than it would have been back when you were working in banking because you have to live with the, the consequences of what you're doing for years to come? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. I think it's like, it's not just the the two moves. I think you have to, it's kind of the 10 moves beyond this. It's like, not only does this, like from a strategic component, what does this do for us, but what does it not do for us? And you get into capital allocation and it's like, what, what else could we be doing with this money that a banker would have no idea what the optionality of, you know, funding some other project or something else else at the company, what the returns on that would be versus doing some sort of acquisition. And acquisitions can be very distracting as well because it's incremental revenue for a lot of times. Sometimes they're accretive. And so you get kind of addicted to that, but there's a fallout of, you know, longer term strategic thinking I'm really big into this like horizon one, horizon two, horizon three concept that uh, McKinsey, I think, minted. A lot of acquisitions don't fulfill like the horizon two, horizon three edict. And I think that creates a lot of problems. Very few bankers have actually ever had to execute and integrate another company. And once you start doing that, you realize that it's got a myriad of different problems and different challenges that are almost unquantifiable. And I think I learned this early on, like when I was at LoudCloud. Uh, we got acquired, and I think probably within a year, probably half of the key people had left the company on to other things. And so you're not just buying the product, but you're also buying the people. And when you lose the people, I think you've lost a lot of the value. So what are you doing from a cultural standpoint to integrate people as quickly as possible and make them productive, but also make them want to work there? And those are those are the kind of things that are very, very difficult to do from a banking perspective because you just you don't have the experience. And clearly, with your background and experience in working on so many of these transactions and deals, you, you get that side of the CFO responsibilities. Uh, you know, it is probably very natural, very easy for you. But then there's probably an operational side that you just never encountered in the same way because you hadn't been a CFO. You'd been you'd been in an advisory role. So what what were the 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 areas where you had to like learn and develop significantly as you transferred to becoming a CFO? Fortunately or unfortunately, we had to learn on the job. I would say I'm prouder of my operational chops than I am even on the finance side. And I think what I've had to learn is just like how companies operate. That's first and foremost. Like I understand where uh, our projects, what our plan is. And I have a, I have a really good, I have a good strong sense of like where we're willing to make allocations. And there's a finance role in it, not just from a budgeting standpoint. So 
it's helped me integrate into the company very well. And then the more that I'm integrated, the more comfortable I think I can be is I can provide more uh, leadership and, you know, guidance in terms of the company. And I think a lot of like business intelligence is about pattern recognition. And so I've worked with, I mean, think about it. I've worked on probably like 35 IPOs and I've worked with like maybe 50, 60 different companies with varying different business models. Is there something that I can take out of those and apply to our current company's problems or issues or areas that we're going to invest into and try to help the company? So, but it, but there's a lot of like on, on-site learning and stuff like that. But I think I've had really good partners inside the companies that have actually like allowed me to like a safe space where I can ask like a million questions and not compromise myself as like, you have no idea what you're talking about kind of stuff. And presumably as well, you will have relied upon you, your team and your the leaders within your team to help bridge those knowledge gaps. And so what I was wondering, listening to you, is that you've obviously had an incredibly strong and interesting training ground prior to coming becoming a CFO that's prepared you for part, part of the aspects of the role. And I was wondering when you were hiring your team and you're building your teams, are you looking for people that might have followed a similar journey and, and had that similar formative experience or doing quite the opposite, actually, trying to find people who can complement that so that you can build out, I guess, a more holistic team because they come from a different path? Yeah, I think it's probably the latter, which is, uh, I mean, I have I have people on my team, like we, we like corporate development, I think there's a natural segue to having uh, people that have transaction experience uh, and think about strategy, like with a kind of a ba- investment banking lens. And I have people on my team that do that. But as it comes to like FP&A and these other disciplines inside the company, core accounting, I need to hire subject matter experts that can help complement us and help complement me. I mean, everybody that works for me I'm hoping is making my life easier. And that's by filling in areas where I don't have, like I, I don't have 20 years of training to perform those disciplines. And so if you think about it, like I came in from investment banking, like what did I know about SAS accounting? Some, but not enough that that would matriculate through like an income statement balance sheet that would pass an audit or something like this. Or FP&A, like what are the best techniques or what are the best ways to think about doing budgeting inside a like a multinational corporation. And that's something that I didn't learn on the job. I had to learn on the job, but I had good partners to work with. And then we would discuss like the nuances of different ways to do budgeting and planning. And we kind of like zeroed in on it. There's a couple of techniques like you probably heard about zero-based budgeting or things like this, like different ways, but it just like naturally just kind of fell into place. But it was only because I had really great partners that I was able to hire. But in any job, I think you have to hire I don't want to use like sports analogies, but like you need a quarterback and you need linemen and you need receivers and you need a coach and you have to hire point positions. And I tend to hire people that are very experienced to probably help me get to to move faster. So you would be of the school of thought where you almost hire for a greater level of experience than you might need today because they can help you prepare for the years to come. To some extent, I think now that I've been doing this, I've been doing like CFO stuff for eight years or so. So I think I've kind of found like what the right fit is. But I think earlier on, I definitely probably over-indexed on hiring more experienced people. But you have to build a whole ecosystem under you, which is there's an ability to, you know, this happens a lot in small companies. There's not a lot of promotion opportunities. So you have to create opportunities for people to hire very you know young, but very talented, very smart people. 
and build a career path for them inside of a, you know, some limited areas that you have because a company of our size, we only need 10 or 15 people in accounting. It's not like we're at Oracle where they have, you know, a thousand people in the team, but we have to create other opportunities for them to continue to grow. So I think that creating a really nice balance between the two of having people that can provide mentorship and leadership, and then having really young talent that you can move through a system very, very quickly based on their own, you know, attributes creates kind of like right, right leveling for us. So do you have in your mind like a, a full house of finance that if you had someone that was super talented and very ambitious coming into your team, that you would try and move them into different parts of the team to get experience so they could be prepared one day to become a CFO? Absolutely. And like, I want to hire people that are stronger than I am, that are really talented. So like, I I think there's there's always a subsect of people that are like kind of afraid of like, if I hire somebody too strong, I, I don't think they'll explicitly say it, but if I hire somebody too strong, like this guy's going to take my job or something like this. And I'm like the least threatened person by that at all. And I tell people like when I hire like a controller or an FP&A, my job is I work with you. There's areas where I can teach you. It's usually like in the IR component or about, you know, like really hardcore finance stuff, which I, I would consider myself a subject matter expert. And I'm going to train you how to become a CFO. And part of it's going to be operational and I'm going to create opportunities for you. So like I'm working with a really great controller right now and he aspires to be a CFO. I know I can't keep him here forever but I'm going to teach him how the IR piece works. And I'm going to teach him about some of the capital allocation. And I'm going to teach him about how a big part of being a CFO is creating influence. And I'm going to teach him how to be an influencer. And that will set him on his own career path. But, you know, if I can keep him for two years and I get a lot of performance out of him, and then he goes on to be a great CFO somewhere else, and the same thing goes for my FP&A person, I'll be super happy because I think I have a system where I can continue to move people you know, through it. And so it's like, I, at least I have some precedent of men and men and women can continue to move on and be very successful, but under the tutelage of like, I'm going to help you fill in some of the gaps that I see, but let's build a career path for you so that you can be who you need to be. And ultimately you need to have my job. Let's figure out how you're going to be, how you're going to get to become a CFO. And it sounds as if you've put a lot of thought into this and, and perhaps you, you mentioned earlier on the teaching and development DNA that you, you had and you saw like Ben Horowitz demonstrating in your earlier days. And, and it feels as if actually this is a core tenant of how you lead and build and motivate teams. The other thing that I, I noticed in early in your profile, and you mentioned that as a consultant, you were trying to like not, not just sell billable hours, but you were advising on technology. And I wondered... Now that you're in the role of CFO and there's been a proliferation of different technologies, new new services and new solutions that have been set up to support all the world of GNA in the way that sales and marketing was kind of addressed 10, 15 years ago in a large way. I was wondering how your early experience with technology and as an advisor and consultant around financial technology is influencing the way that you view technology as a CFO today. I'd say actually it's like the primary influencer is that when you work with software, like I used to install these ERP systems, right? I actually, I don't, I don't know what they were replacing back in the day, but, it, and it wasn't Excel, but there was like some, I, I think it was just an army of accountants and some sort of like, maybe it's a mainframe or something like this. I don't really know, but you could see the operational efficiency that you could create. And like, that's one of my big like calling cards is like, before I have to hire another person, what can I do to automate your job? And I don't mean automate you out of a job, but free your mental capacity for triage as opposed to like daily tasks. So like a very simple thing is like 
bills come in and then in an old system, people will transcribe the bill into some sort of accounting system. And then they'll be like, it'll launch this thing on how to get paid. And I'm like, that's a colossal waste of time of an individual. So what can we do to automate this? And there's tons of great companies that do this now, but like 15 years ago, I don't think they really existed, but I've taken like a hundred percent of an automation first kind of stuff, but more as a liberation of like, like I said, mental capacity. And like at one company I was at, one of the things that was happening was we were shipping tons and tons of goods. I mean, we were shipping like containers full of stuff out of China and there was one person and their job was to take like these bills of lading or some, something to do with like how the manifest of what's in there, it goes into like some public documents or something like this for the shipping stuff. The person was spending eight to 10 hours a day taking this from this one system and literally like typing it over to, can you, can you imagine a worse job than doing that? It's just like, you take this, but the other thing is, is it gets filled with errors and somebody makes one misstatement. I don't care how detail oriented are. There's a, there's an opportunity to make some mistake that creates some downstream problem. And so the controller and I were very, very big. And that's one of my big things is like, what can we do to automate these things? So we saw this happening. We have a team that's their full job on like the business services side. So like we oversee all the business systems. And we said, what can we do here? And he said, I could write a script that could take this from point A to point B. And it took him like a week, uh, three days to write it. And then data like test it and make sure it was working. And it worked. And it was like this person, when we showed him we didn't tell them that we were doing this. Uh, it was a woman. She started crying. She was so happy <laughs> that we were actually like, she's just like, she just got her life back, you know? And now she could actually work on what she really needed to do, which is like some of the like triage types of those issues. And like, there's other things that blow up in the whole ecosystem instead of just like this really, really mundane task that was just like eating her soul on a day-to-day -day basis. And she'd been doing it for years and she never raised her hand and stuff like this. What we've been very focused on is like getting people to raise their hand and educating that like we as a finance team or a business services team or whatever you want to call it, that we can automate parts of these jobs. And it's not because you have to fear losing your job. It's because we're going to make your job more important. The fact that I've seen firsthand how software changes the world for people in terms of creating efficiency and opportunities and stuff like that. I think that's like very, very important in my DNA as a CFO is like, we need to automate the crap out of absolutely everything. And that seems to be, there's a new wave of, of CEOs, uh, CFOs, sorry, that are focusing on that same automation. But the, the often the really tricky question is, how do you do it? Because that automation, just like any transformation in the short term requires like bursts of energy, like significant bursts of energy, focus. You need to think about what, what's the process to be automated, which tool do you use? You need to implement it, get through all of the pains of that. So how is it that you do that? Do you actually have dedicated resources or do you actually insist that everyone as part of their job considers it? Because that's the really tricky piece. Yeah, so I, I built it into their KPIs for the year. So like, what are you going to do for the year? Like we have support people that help us with this as well. So it's like, you know, the controller has a role here and we have uh, other business operations, but it's like, let's break down your job into what actually you're spending your time on. And let's look at the different tasks and let's figure out in one of your jobs is that you have to be like, interviewing, look for opportunities that there's a cross, there's a cost trade-off for the time that you spend doing this versus something automated. So if I have to hire another person that's going to cost 60 or $70,000 a year fully loaded to do this task, or I can have a software company implemented that does it for 10 or $15,000 a year, there's an obvious time return of money or, you know, it's going to save the, money, the company money, but also the accuracy is going to be a lot better. Their job is actually 
talk to those vendors. They they own their ecosystem. So it's like your job is to figure out where we can build in automation into this. And there's a little bit of training that has has to happen inside of this, but it's like I think they're like, oh, I my old CFO, he would didn't want to invest the money. And I'm like, I, I see the trade-off is so high that we're stupid if we're not investing the money. You need to be coming up with ideas. You need to be creative. You need to figure out how to make your job more tenable and create more efficiency inside of whatever you're doing. And the tools are what's going to actually support this. So we're here, we're here to make your job life easier, but also it's going to make my life easier because I don't have to spend as much money. That is uh, an incredibly powerful statement where you're, you actually want that investment because you know that the payoff is so clear for or the, or the return on, on your investment because it's not just in that single year. You, you can implement a piece of software once. Of course, you pay recurring fees, but it's often a fraction of it. And then there's one thing that's come across that, that many leaders, of, especially finance leaders, have appreciated is the increase in, uh, in employee engagement morale as they're able to spend their time focused on more interesting, higher value activities. I, I couldn't agree more. Maybe I see myself as like some sort of liberator or something like this, but it's just like, <laughs> I'm just trying to bring like an appetite where like, you know, accounting has a reputation of being kind of mundane. I think there's an exciting wave of like new technology and all these other things that are happening inside the world as it relates to accounting and it relates to process and all these things that you can do huge gap ups very, very quickly. And I see that as an investment in the employees, like you said, but I, I try to incent people to come up with new ideas on solving like age old problems or like, and this is a question I ask all the time. What do you hate most about your job? And maybe they don't tell me, <laughs> maybe it's me. I don't know. But past the personal point is you have to unpack it and like, what's the root cause and what is the thing that you dislike about your job the most, or is like the most frustrating thing. And I want you to put together a plan on how you're going to solve that. And you've got a longer memory than most because you were involved in those ERP implementations for finance teams over 20 years ago. So are there there certain categories in this proliferation of uh, systems and services for finance that you're most excited about? I think the the companies have done a really good job, like these third-party companies have done a really good job around a lot of the manual process inside of like the day-to-day accounting stuff, which is closing process, AP, AR, recognition, like these kind of things. I think the the battleground right now that I'm, we're most excited about is the next generation of all these FP&A planning tools. I think that's where there's been a lot of great advancements, even though there's some companies that have been around for three to five years. We've been looking at like the next generation of tools or how they've gapped up from where they were five years ago and how they're able to... I work for a company called Pixar right now. We have more data than you could possibly ever imagine because we have you know, we have a platform, we have 150 million monthly active users. So we have tons and tons of data, but aggregating and grabbing that data and then turning it into uh, a planning tool or something, this is a, is a very difficult task because you have data lakes and you have transformation of data and you, have, you just have all these things moving around all the time, creating attribution of data and stuff like that. So I'm really excited about the open nature of how you can bring in from, it used to be like, hey, we just uh, plug it into NetSuite and it sucks everything out of NetSuite. And now we turn into, it's like, well, we think that uh, revenue in this area is going to go up two and a half percent and something else. You know, it's like rel- relatively simplistic, but it was based off of actual data and trying to build like trend rates. And now you can ingest real data and it will build trend analysis and stuff like that. That's fairly sophisticated, I would say, and it's only going to get better. So I think like as we're looking about how we can 
go beyond just the core accounting system of like a NetSuite or SAP or Oracle or whatever you're using for ingestment of data and actually using real live world data and interpolating that into a planning tool is probably where I'm most excited. I think that, that there's a great opportunity there and it's continue. I, I, what I've seen just like every year, it gets a little bit better. It's the biggest area where I think you can make improvements because it ultimately the certainty of your forecasting and these other components help you make better capital allocation decisions. And I guess as well, given the the turbulence that we're that we've experienced recently, that forecasting is more important now than ever because it's arguably harder than it's ever been because we've gone through such a, an up and down period over the past eighteen months globally. Yeah, it's been a wild ride, but I I, I would say that I, I I'm very fortunate that I've worked at companies that have been we're a community based primarily online components. So there's companies that have like direct sales reps and these other things where I think it's been really, really challenging. You know, it's like, how do you build a forecast when you can't even meet your clients or customers? Like those are really, really challenging circumstances. And then they have supply chain issues and they have this and they have this. It's like all these different components that put your company at risk, not only on the revenue side, but on the cost of operations and OPEX and everything else. I think we've been pretty fortunate that just because we're a, you know, we're in the software business that we don't have some of those constraints. And, you know, our business is really mostly around a prosumer consumer type of customer. And so, you know, there's an organic nature of that people come onto our platform and start using our products and things like that. So it's like, we probably don't have as many of the difficulties as a lot of other people have had. And that's the common thread for many software and technology companies. There's been, I think Satya Nadella probably had the, the phrase in, for this particular part, this theme, the phrase of the pandemic, where he said very early on, we've seen two years of digital transformation in two months. And that was only two months into the pandemic. And I think that trend has clearly continued. Which raises the question as we as we draw the interview to a close, you've given uh, some great advice for you know fellow CFOs and certainly aspiring CFOs. But as we go into next year, the last couple of years have been like almost impossible to predict. But what's your view on on the year ahead, and and are there particular areas that you're focused on, or uh, in terms of investment or as a company, um, that you're you do you see optimism? I would say I'm as a CFO, like internally, you're probably on a scale of one to ten, like your optimism should be around a five or a six. Externally, my optimism is always like in the seven and a half or something like this, which is like some sort of rational component, like I'm the rational guy, I'm not the rah-rah guy, but I generally feel pretty good about the business and the direction that we're going. When you're talking about like, where are you investing or what do you see for the next year? I mean, I think it's going to be a whole sea of chaos that we're going to continue to see. So it's not, you can already see this, this grand opening, grand closing type of world. We're talking right now at the you know middle of December and I've been on a plane the last six weeks. So I feel like the, you know, the, the economy has started to open up and the travel and all this other stuff. And then it feels like it's kind of grand closing again. So like we're back to all these mass mandates and so that. So I think that like preparing for it's going to be just more of the same is probably the best way to go as it relates to like capital allocation decisions and things that we're doing as a company. We're a California-based company, but we're actually very international. And so a lot of our investments, we're, we're a product company. So our investments are really around what are we doing in R&D to open up new areas where we can leverage emerging talent pockets. And so like we have um, we have operations in Russia and Armenia and parts of Western Europe, and we have a new office that we opened up in India. And we're gonna continue to like invest where we think there's very, very strong talent bases, especially on engineering and some assemblance of product. 
or product management to drive our platform forward. And we have all kinds of ideas and stuff like this that we've put back to my like KPI ROI analysis that we have some really exciting areas that we've been investing in that we think that will probably be 20, 30% of our revenue over the next few years. And so we're putting in the investment dollars now to help take advantage of these opportunities. I can appreciate that. We operate in the scale-up markets, all of us in, in Europe. The war for talent here is unlike anything has ever been. In, in some ways, it's reminiscent of what the Bay Area has been like for the last five or so years. And so that idea of using, pardon the cliche, the new normal of a distributed hybrid workforce, it, it means that you can ramp up and find talent in a way that many companies have never been able to. Yeah, I think I, I, I'd say that here we, because we have a, the, all these next generation tools allow you to be distributed too. So I'm not, and I'm not just talking about Zoom and whatever. It's like Atlassian, which is like what all the developers use from a baseline and stuff like that, is that you can build distributed groups very, very quickly and have them fully integrated into like, you know, a product direction and stuff like that. And so that very heavily I'm invested in that thesis that you can be very, very successful. And it's not outsourcing it's capitalizing on other uh, talent pools. There's tons and tons of A-plus talent in California, but there's also plenty of tons of A-plus talent in Ukraine and in Riga, which is in Latvia, and all these other areas where there's tons of computer science students and all these other people that are very, very creative that just haven't been tapped into because there was some geographical dislocation. And now they can be fully integrated into the company. And so, you know, I'm really big into what can we do to be moving our platform forward 24-7 as opposed to the California working day. It's a, it's a fascinating trend and it'll, it'll be really interesting to follow that journey from, from afar. Craig, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. There's been some brilliant uh, words of wisdom um, that I'm sure our listeners will love. For any of our listeners that would like to follow you online, is there a place that they should they can follow or connect with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the best uh, avenue for me is I'm a, unfortunately a heavy LinkedIn user and company developments, ideas and stuff like that. I, I generally, that becomes my outlet for posting information, but it's also probably the easiest way to get a hold of me as well. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Craig. Ross, oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.